This is I Choose Life, news and views sponsored by Indiana Right to Life and Right to Life of Northeast Indiana, committed to defending innocent human life for all people of all ages. I Choose Life, news and views is produced by Bot Radio Network in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome, I'm Zach Rogers, and you are listening to I Choose Life, news and views. I'm with Right to Life of Northeast Indiana, and I am joined today by a special guest, uh, Mike Fichter, who is president and CEO of Indiana Right to Life. And thanks, Mike, for joining me. Thank you, Zach, for having me on. It's always a pleasure to come on to the program. Absolutely. And we were talking off air that uh, I'm pretty sure you are my first interview guest when I came on board with Right to Life almost one year to the day. Well, you know, it's, I'm just glad that you had me come back on. It wasn't a disaster a year ago. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I think we actually hit on a lot of the same topics. And so I'm actually really excited to dive into this. So this Indiana State Legislative Session is underway, and it's a long session, which involves the budget, but it's a little different this year. So could you maybe talk a little bit about what things look like now compared to normal and what that long session really means. Yeah, I would say it's a lot different from previous years. Uh, there are just so many different dynamics. Of course, COVID is one of those that has dominated uh, this legislature as well as the you know, same issues going on around the country. So you have restrictions on on different things, uh, just a different way that business is being done. But then a complete curveball has been thrown into this with the, the inaugural week. Of course, mm. uh, the state house was completely shut down from Monday through Wednesday, and then all committee hearings and other type of legislative meetings uh, were canceled for that week as well. So uh, you couple the COVID with the shutdown of the state house, and then you add into that. I, you know, I don't know exactly why. I don't know if it's COVID related or what's sure. going on. But even the drafting of legislation seems to be going much slower this year. Hmm. You know, normally the bills are out there, and you kind of know by the middle of January the lay of the land. And really, um, that's not the case this year. I mean, we're Mm -hmm. still seeing legislation drafted. It just seems like, uh, you know, maybe between the House and the Senate side, there are different tempos, different speeds in each chamber. And uh, it's kind of like it's really, really, really slow. Then there's activity that happens quickly and then it Uh slows down, then it shuts down. And so it's a completely different landscape uh, this year versus anything we've seen in prior years. Sure. And there's not, my understanding is even the normal day-to-day stuff is vastly different, not even just this week with it being shut down, but testifying the people in the hallways that usually catch legislators in between meetings, all of that is vastly different. All of that is vastly different. So everybody's trying to adjust to the same environment right now, but between masks, distancing, uh, virtual testimonies, a different thing that's going on right now, for anyone who maybe has not experienced the state house in the past, maybe uh, wouldn't see the differences on it. I don't know, but it's just completely different landscape uh, versus prior years, but everybody's in the same we navigate through that. We have a, a great team of three lobbyists working at the state house this year, and they're learning how to navigate this new landscape yeah. just like everybody else is. And it's just part of this different world that we're mm-hmm. in right now. And it seems kind of odd to say this, but I don't think it can be understated 
that even the legislators dealing with that, I mean, they're used to a routine, especially those that have been there for a while, it throws them for a curveball. So I'm sure they're still even figuring, which could be a point with regards to the tempo that you mentioned that could play a factor in. They just don't know how to get into their routine because this is so vastly different. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And even going back into December before the session started uh, in discussions that I was involved with in both the House and the Senate side, it was clear even at that point that no one really knew what to expect. So we're just kind of in uncharted territory right now. When you think of, yeah, 2020 and everybody looks back at 2020 as the COVID year. Mm -hmm. Well, in January of 2020, COVID was not even a concern in the United States. That was something we were seeing on the evening news from overseas. And if I recall correctly, I don't think it was really until March uh, that the whole COVID started to take effect as far as operations in in state house or other places. So you compare this January versus last January, totally different landscape. Right. And that's towards the end of their legislative session in a short session, whereas now they're starting from a completely having to wipe the slate clean and, and try different things from the very beginning. So it, it could be an interesting session as we move along and, and how they change things and uh, function. So let's talk about some of the bills that Indiana Right to Life is pushing for, supporting, and maybe some of the ones that, that you're keeping an eye on that you want to uh, let listeners know are, are kind of out there on the periphery. One of those bills I know is House Bill 1577, which is a pretty broad bill that encompasses a lot. Yeah, we consider that an omnibus bill. And an omnibus bill is very helpful just for listeners to understand in that instead of introducing, for example, 10 separate bills dealing with 10 separate items with an omnibus bill, a lot of that is packed into it. And that's actually been something that we've seen at the State House. For probably the last decade, it's been very common to put a lot of these. And and a big portion of that is because legislators uh, would like to have one committee hearing and Mm -hmm. and get it all over with, have the floor fight and move it on to another chamber instead of having 10 separate fights on 10 separate issues. So in this particular bill, uh, just some of the things that are involved with this, um, let's kind of walk through some highlights of it. But one of it is making sure that women in Indiana if they are considering a, a chemical abortion in Indiana, we would love to see in this legislation, it's in this legislation, uh, we would love to see the informed consent in Indiana uh, include information about abortion pill reversal process. Mm. And this is something that's been increasingly used uh, across the country. And what women need to know is that there's a they, it's a two-step process. If they take right. the first drug and they regret it, they regret that they've taken this, there's an abortion pill process. They can give a hotline number that they can be given information on how they can engage in this reversal process. My understanding is there's been over 3,000 babies saved across the country from women who have regretted wow. taking the first drug, and then they went through the abortion pill process and, and the babies were born uh, healthy and normally. And this is just something that to put it, uh, you know, this is not information women are going to receive unless it's in informed consent. So we want that packed in informed consent uh, law in Indiana to make sure a woman knows she Mm -hmm. takes the first pill, she regrets it. uh, There is a process that she can use. It's not 100% effective, but it's being highly effective and saved thousands of lives. She should at least know about it so she can get information on that process. And we've had successes 
in Indiana where that has come up. And of course, you know, one of our rock stars, Dr. Christina Francis, is extremely influential and knows about that as in-depth as just about anybody. Yeah, and she can testify very clearly to the effectiveness of, of this process and why women should be informed of this. So she's a great example of a doctor who is very experienced with this process. We also have in this bill, and this addresses situations in which a minor is seeking an abortion and maybe somebody signs parental consent. We don't know that that person signing the parental consent is really the parent or really an adult in charge of this. So as an additional step, we think that that, uh, any signature on that should be notarized. And that adds a different level of protection to where the identity of the person signing it really needs to be gone over with a fine-tooth comb. I had something notarized recently, Mm -hmm. and I know it's a different level of process, not just to sign something, but to show proof that you are who you claim you are. Uh, So that's something we think needs to go into Indiana law. We also need in Indiana to have conscience protections for mental health workers. We've expanded conscience protections in Indiana for um, doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers so that they can't be forced into um, being involved with an abortion. Those same protections do not extend to mental health workers who are, you know, counseling patients where abortion comes into the equation. So we think the conscience protection uh, that's afforded to other health workers should be Uh extended to to mental health workers. That only makes sense to extend those protections. Absolutely. Um, And a key provision of this bill also is involving ultrasound photos. That Mm. in Indiana, going back to January 1, Indiana's law requiring that any woman considering abortion must be uh, given the opportunity to view the ultrasound of her baby 18 hours prior to an abortion. That's now back in effect as of January 1. But what is not happening is that woman is not given a copy of the photo of that ultrasound that she Uh can take with her. And so we want to require that she's given a copy of that photo of that baby's ultrasound. And in addition, that a copy of that baby's photo, that ultrasound be attached to her record. That's key to some other key provisions in this bill, which means during a yearly inspection, files can be pulled at random, and those ultrasound photos need to be attached to those random files that are pulled to verify that that abortion facility is actually doing the ultrasounds and that they're giving the ultrasound photo to the woman and that they're attaching them to the file. So we think that's very important to have that attached to the file so that it shows during an inspection if they're meeting the law or not. But obviously, it's very important that that woman sees the ultrasound, but then has that picture to take home with her. And you can mark it down right now. The abortion clinics, they like to say they are Uh pro-woman, and yet they will throw every objection into the world. I've been told that the paper, to print off an ultrasound photo, probably cost about three cents to print that photo off. Uh And mark my words, they will scream that this is an undue burden because it increases their expenses uh, (laughs) to do this, which is an ironic statement anyway, because we all know that any expenses they incur are just going to be tagged on to the cost of the abortion. This bill also ties licensing to inspection. So if a facility is inspected and they're in violation, but then they're applying for a license renewal, but they have all these violations that are sitting there, that license shouldn't just be automatically granted and you're not in compliance with what the law is. So this ties licensing to the actual inspection. It should have been happening all along, but it's not. So it needs to be placed into Indiana law. So it's very clear uh, what the ground rules are on this. What's scary to me is the thought that an abortion clinic could be out of compliance and then 
still get their license renewed. That's exactly the point. And that's why the tie between licensing and inspection just hasn't been made. And this Uh bill makes that tie. This is connecting the dots on that to say, look, a common sense would tell you, just as you said, if it's out of compliance, it's violating state law, why is it a rubber stamp procedure to automatically renew a license? So that's exactly what this is trying to address in this bill. And then we have this last issue just for me to bring up, and there are some others in this bill, but this one may sound counterintuitive. It is working to take the FDA regulations out of any reference as far as Indiana Mm. law dealing with chemical abortions. Now, somebody might say, well, the FDA, uh, why would we want to remove those regulations? When the original chemical abortions law went into effect, we knew that abortion clinics were using the chemical abortion process and they weren't following FDA regs. They weren't following any health and safety regs as far as we know. And so the Indiana law stepped in to say, look, if you're using this drug in Indiana, here are the regulations. The problem with this now becomes with a hostile federal administration, uh, the FDA is going to be under immense pressure to eliminate every reasonable safeguard for the use of this drug to the extent that we actually believe in very short order, you're going to see the FDA actually allow this to be sold over the counter. And listeners have seen the unplanned movie. And you think about the part of the unplanned movie where the actress playing Abby Johnson is basically bleeding out on her restroom floor Mm -hmm. from using this chemical abortion process. That is what this drug does. And to even fathom that it would even be considered to make this available as an yeah. over-the-counter or through the mail without like any you're buying allergy medicine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just frightening at, at various is. different levels. So what we feel is imperative at this point that for the legislature to take action to actually sever Indiana's law from being tied to any FDA regs, because as long as it's tied to the FDA regs. If the regs go completely south and allow over-the-counter sales and all that kind of stuff, which we are anticipating, Indiana's law is tied to it at the hip right now, Mm -hmm. sever that connection so that Indiana's regulations and restrictions on it stand alone and don't get dragged down by what the federal administration is going to do. (laughs) And this is a key thing that's running throughout a lot of the legislative session this year is uh, sadly, unfortunately, a lot of these things that we're hoping to pass this year are playing defense against a total onslaught that's going to happen from the federal level. One of the ways you fight that onslaught is to look strategically at how the state defends against what we're going to see happening at the federal level. Absolutely. And probably the irony of us recording this on the day of President Biden's inauguration is not lost on me of that very fact, we are going to be on offense on, in some situations and on defense in a lot of situations, knowing that that's right. coming down the line. Yeah. And probably, Zach, at the time we're recording this, who knows, by the time we're done with this, uh, we're probably going to start getting words of executive orders that are going to be uh, devastating to the unborn. And it's a very sad moment in American history, but it's reality. Yeah. So we're adjusting to, and in many ways, to play defense on the state level against the new reality that we're going to see at the federal level. Absolutely. And I love this bill that has so many things that are woven and interconnected to each other And they all are about saving lives. And I think you hit on it with the abortion pill being sold online and by mail. That pill is obviously devastating to the baby, but it's wildly dangerous to the woman taking it. 
And Mm -hmm. the thought of that being just another thing you order through Amazon and delivered in two days to your house is absolutely frightening. Yeah, it's just mind blowing to even think of that. And again, in one of these watch and see moments, you will see the abortion businesses in Indiana go nuts over this. Again, here are the businesses that say, you know, they're pro-woman, and yet they will not want this information to be given to women. Well, why? If, if you want full informed consent for anything, uh, why would you not want women to be fully informed of the abortion bill mm-hmm. reversal possibility? Instead, you would definitely, the abortion industry will raise every red flag on this saying we shouldn't give women this information because they look at it as throwing up obstacles, making them truly informed of what may save their baby's life. Right. And that's one of the dangers as we move forward into this new phase of telemedicine expanding. And there are obviously some incredible opportunities in a positive way for telemedicine to be expanded across this country. But without organizations like Indiana Right to Life keeping an eye on how would that impact the life movement from all ages from conception to natural death, there could be some really big consequences that people are not thinking about or talking about enough. Right. The telehealth technology, all of us have seen in a COVID environment how it can be very useful technology. Maybe a trip to the doctor's office for basic stuff. But when uh, in a situation like abortion, uh, where a human life is going to be taken with this, uh, and where the physical exam, the interaction on that is, is so critical with this. We do have a law in Indiana that prevents abortion through telehealth and the administering of drugs and so forth like that. That's being challenged in court. In fact, that's going to be argued in March, I believe, as part of this uh-huh. gigantic lawsuit that the South Bend abortion business has filed against the state of Indiana. But still, even with that under court review right now, there are still ways that we're trying to tighten that up to make sure that in the whole rush of the medical community to take full advantage of telehealth and the good probabilities and possibilities of telehealth, uh, there will be the bad actors uh, that will be looking at how to use this for evil purposes. So we are uh, doing our due diligence on this to make sure that we can slam shut any loophole that abortion businesses may be looking at uh, exploiting for the practical purpose from their perspective of expanding their business in Indiana using telehealth. Sure. One bill, um, kind of moving on from the omnibus bill that I was really intrigued by is from a brand new state rep who took office for the first time without knowing she was going to take office uh, just about a month ago uh, with Joanna King, Representative King in House Bill 1439, talking about coerced abortions, which is a really another one of those horrifying topics to have to think about, but it's incredibly important that we have these conversations. Right. This bill uh, that you referenced, Zach, it puts into the forefront a very troubling issue that the abortion businesses don't want to talk about, uh, but it's the issue of women being pressured and forced into having abortions, whether it's from an abusive boyfriend, a husband, uh, whether it's from a, a parent, it may be an employer who says you have this abortion or your job's no longer here anymore. And this is something that it's kind of this silent thing that's out there that women who experience it know it's real, 
but the uh, abortion businesses don't want to address it. And so it's these women are just uh, left in this forgotten zone mm. when they're being abused and coerced in this way. So this bill directly addresses that by laying out felony penalties for anyone who coerces a woman into having an abortion and also drills down to even the level of she has to be asked. If she's coming in to counsel for an abortion, she has to be asked, are you in any way being pressured or coerced into having this abortion? And where some of the real teeth in this legislation lies is it's not just the abuser committing a class, I think a class six felony for coercing a woman to have an abortion. But if an abortion business worker knows that this woman's being coerced and fails to report it, that person is in violation of a class six felony as well. And she also has to be given information, even to the extent of if she needs to call somebody or law enforcement, let's say the abuser has actually driven her to the clinic Mm -hmm. and is waiting for her to have the abortion. Um, She can make a call and have a separate exit from the facility so that she can get away from this person who is abusing her in such a fashion. This bill is really extensive. Um, It may be the first of its kind in the country. I'm not sure that any state has something that drills this far down on the coercion of women. But again, it's one of those topics that hasn't been addressed nearly enough. A lot of women are just suffering in silence feeling pressured and and just uh, abused into abortion situations. And this helps to address that very serious issue. Right. And how scary to have these people that are working at these facilities who these women are going in and hoping they can trust to be able to, to say, listen, you're responsible for this woman as well. You know, you want to talk about, you want to do what's best for the woman and her health. And you're going to not only overlook what situation she's in, but actively participate in it. I think that's absolutely a good part to have in that bill. Yeah, those women need protection. They need some type of safety zone, safety net. Sure. And how tragic and it's absolutely sad to think of women who are being abused, being coerced, that have no place that's turning uh, to help them or helping them to report this. Yep. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Zach Rogers with Right to Life of Northeast Indiana. I'm joined with Mike Victor, who is with Indiana Right to Life. And we're talking about the legislation that Indiana Right to Life is pushing for or supporting. And one of the really interesting ones that I want to talk about here in our last few minutes is regarding the Real Alternatives Program and the funding because I think it's important for our listeners to know, one, about the program itself, but two, about why funding the way it is matters for the life movement and life issues. Right. The Real Alternatives Program uh, was authorized by then-Governor Mike Pence five years ago. And so for the last five years, it's been authorized at a $2.25 million per year um, level and it helps places like the Women's Care Centers in Fort Wayne and South Bend, Indianapolis, and other facilities to really provide free counseling and services to women and their babies all the way through baby's first birthday. So it's, they serve, I believe, that the numbers at 72,000 women at this point. Wow. Immense cost savings to the state by making sure women are connected to proper prenatal care. So all these benefits are happening, but the key to this is that program has been funded through grant monies that come through the Temporary Assistance for Needy Family Funds from Mm. the federal government to the state government, and the state government uses that for various purposes. And Real Alternatives is just one of of many that the state use that funding for. The problem now, the threat, 
I should say, is that we fully suspect that the Biden administration is going to attach full options counseling onto every federal dollar that comes into the state. So if they do that, what that means is any pro-life business ministry center, whatever it might be called, if they accept any federal dollars, then they would have to agree to do full options counseling, which means they would have to refer and counsel for abortions if a woman comes into their center. That would be nuclear. Pro-life centers could not do that. They would not do that. And they'd have to walk away from that program. And of course, the federal government under a Biden administration understands that. That's exactly why they would be putting that poison pill into those dollars. So, and again, one of these defensive modes against what possibly could be happening at the federal level by getting this included in the state budget instead of the federal stream of dollars, then we can insulate the program and its really life-saving effect on uh, thousands of babies in Indiana and the help that it provides Uh for women. We can insulate this program from the potential pro-abortion regs that are going to come down through the federal administration. Putting in the state budget means it would be funded through state dollars, not federal dollars. And in a time like this, that will make all the difference in the world. Yeah, that is another area of the changing of the administration and how that affects real people and real babies that we're talking about. They're definitely going to go on attack, and it's just a matter of time. They will, and this is why it's so necessary right now for us to be proactive and start to think strategically and defensively. There are times when you are on full-bore offense. There are times where you have to be leaning heavier on defense. And while we don't know the full wave and the full impact of what's coming, we know it's going to be severe. We know it's going to be very much counter to a culture of life, particularly towards the unborn. And so that's why we're trying to think through all these things and Mm -hmm. get ahead of the curve as opposed to us to be left standing there and just get run over by uh, what may be coming from the federal level. Yeah, for sure. Well, as we close up, Mike, is there anything else that you're seeing from the legislative process or that you want to share with our listeners about what's going on with this change and and everything going on? Well, one thing I would mention is that we're deeply concerned about censorship and eventually even being kicked off of major social media platforms. So uh, one of the ways to negate that is instead of putting all of our cookies in the Facebook basket, our mobile activism system is a great way that doesn't put us at the mercy of social media. And folks can join that by just texting the word babies to 52886. And so when you text that, you'll get a a response back right away and you just enter your information. What that does is it enters you in to get legislative alerts that we can Mm. send directly to your phone. That removes us from being at the mercy of, say, Facebook or Twitter. That seems like it's moving along that direction of uh, increased censorship, cases even blocking or shutting down accounts. We hope it doesn't get to that level. But again, proactively, we're thinking of where it might go and trying to... uh, make sure that we can communicate in an uncensored, unfiltered way to everyone who wants to get legislative information. Sure. I mean, we're seeing Facebook and Twitter and social media places shut conservative pro-life voices down. So I think the proactive side of things is smart. And that way, if a listener wants to be involved in making sure they let their state senator or state rep know about these bills and why they should support them, they'll be able to have that information at their fingertips. Exactly right. Perfect. Well, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you being willing to come on board and share your thoughts on the legislative session. Well, thank you, Zach. I appreciate the opportunity. 
You've been listening to I Choose Life News and Views. If you have questions about this program or if you'd like to support the fight for life, please call 260-471-1849 or go to ichooselife.org because without the right to life, no other rights matter.